Hi there, welcome to Outdoor Gear Chat. We're on episode 26, talking about kit lists for expeditions today. Um, I'm joined as always by Cathy. Hello. Hey Wayne, how are you doing? I'm, I'm all right, thank you. And you're sounding a lot better than in, in recent <laughs> podcasts that, that we had that we recorded as well. The lurgy, the lurgy's departed you by the sounds of it. Yes, I had one little red bar on my test this morning, so I'm very, very excited about that. And um, that's uh, making making my voice sound a little bit better, hopefully. And um, adding to the excitement, this uh, expedition um, hit list podcast is uh, going to be made all the better by a very very special guest um, we have climber alpinist Himalayan mountaineer international mountain guide award-winning author rab athlete and all-round thoroughly nice chap Andy Cave joining us hello Andy hi there thanks for that amazing introduction great to see you Kathy and Wayne I, I hope I can live up to expectations yeah <laughs> I've got more <laughs> <laughs> oh god blimey let's let's start with those uh, with the first one yeah <laughs> yeah well actually um just to give um, our listeners a, a very quick overview andy um those who don't know you um after starting out working as a coal miner um a strike provided an unusual opportunity to spend more time climbing and from hard gritstone first ascents to cutting edge mixed climbs in the Alps and bold new alpine routes in the Himalayas, your experience um, I think really shines through in your two award-winning books, Learning to Breathe and Thin White Line. And both of those are gripping accounts describing um, your transition from working as a teenage coal miner through to high-level alpinism in the Alps, Himalayas, Patagonia, Norway, and Alaska. So we thought for this podcast, we would um, really focus on your favourite kit from your different trips that you've done over the years and the progression uh, of kit really as well through, through those years and in all those sort of massively different environments as well. So hopefully you've got a couple of stories linked to them and uh, we can crack on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my, my wife always says that she's always trying to get me to clear out the shed, but I'm a bit of a hoarder. So a lot of the kit that we'll be talking about is probably behind oh, me somewhere. Uh, and brilliant. of course, it's it's getting hard to move in that shed. You can imagine. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, all we, for holding old kit. <laughs> I was going to say that. Yeah, Kathy in particular is a, it seems to be a fan of stoves, I think, is, is the one we've discussed before. No, that's my husband. Kathy. My husband. Oh, is it? Oh, sorry. Apologies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. What, what do we? Would you want to start with you? Is you the, Scotland, Andy? Would you? Would you mind yeah, starting the tale with that? So you, you've gone. You've gone from essentially down the pit to up, up the Scottish mountains. Is was where you yeah, started. Well, is that? That's right. Well, when actually when I discovered climbing, uh, it's nearly forty years ago. So it's forty years next year, next March, uh, and. Um, I was working as a miner. I think I just started a bit. I've been working at the pit and then I started working underground and um, I joined the Barsley Mountaineering Club and would started out on gritstone uh, cliffs uh, and then went up to Scotland, I think in the spring uh, of 1983. And it was just a, a heck of a step up. I mean, fortunately I was partnered with somebody who was from an outdoor background so he could read a map was quite sensible I, I didn't have that background uh and I still remember climbing on Ben Nevis for the first time out of our depth really uh I, I think I was wearing my school trousers and I had a, a sort of nylon mohair jumper not even real mohair on Ben Nevis and this really lightweight cagoule and we got caught in a storm uh you know halfway up Tower Ridge and ended up having to shelter in in the, the summit uh, pivy shelter for a quite a while but that so that was quite grounding and then 
a few months after that in the winter, uh, that would be 1984, uh, uh, me and my friend took a mountain guide, a bit of a legend actually, called Mal Duff, uh, and he guided us for a week around Glen Cohen on Ben Nevis, and that was an even bigger step up. Of course, we had somebody advising us and what have you, and as well as the you know the things that we learned there, uh, the hard skills, you know how to walk in crampons and stuff. It was it was there was a lot of like how to operate in the mountains, like actually, you know the mindset, looking after yourself. I mean, I know we're going to talk about a lot of environments today, the Alps and the Himalayas and whatever, but still, Scotland in winter, it's a really difficult environment, as is the lakes in winter and you know Wales, but Scotland particularly because. Uh, just, just the size of the mountains, uh, difficult conditions, the fact that the conditions change so quickly in the mountains as well. So um, there's a lot going on. And, and obviously, I know we want to talk about kit as well, that actually choosing the right kit can be quite difficult, you know, depending on what you're doing uh, in the mountains. But certainly for me, that that was a very formative experience that week with Maldorf and my friend Steve. And he, he really inspired us as well. You've got to remember that I was just a young lad and uh, – Maldorf at that time was organizing an expedition to try and climb the unclimbed northeast ridge of Mount Everest, um, you know, which was basically one of the last great challenges in world climbing that that, that, that the climb that Boardman and Tasker had perished on a few years earlier. Um, so he was like a god to us, really, but he he really inspired us and, you know, gave us loads of books, uh, recommendations to read and the Alps. And, and there was just this uh, just it was a very exciting time. Can I ask what what made you or what made you want to get to employ Mal to do that? Then what what had sort of switched in your mind? Well, that's a which... good great question. Yeah, I think it was more like other people in the climbing club could see that we were slightly out of control. So I think they were. <laughs> I think I think they I think we had this. Uh, you know, there's a reason, isn't there, why insurance for young men on motorbikes is very high and it, it, it was that parallel we were sort of right. young and we'd got some ice axes and we got all the gear i'm not saying we had no idea but there was certainly room for very limited idea yeah <laughs> and, and massive by, ambitions yeah yeah and by that time had you moved on from your mohair sweater i had yeah i had very slightly i think i still had i mean it's odd wasn't it i mean gore-tex was it was it was just nearly out. I can't quite remember the date. I think I know a guy that had some Gore-Tex, and actually he was throwing a pair of trousers out, and I said, "No, I'll have those." Uh, but they were obviously past the sell-by date. But it was that kind of culture. We had a. I remember I had a, a ventile cotton jacket, which was the big thing. But of course, the problem with that is that in Scotland it could rain, you'd get wet, and then as you went higher on the mountain, it would just freeze. Oh. So your arms would be like in like being inside cardboard um but we did i think certainly by i wouldn't say on that trip but certainly by 85 86 you know gore-tex was more normal but the early jackets just for context weren't necessarily cut in a technical way so they were if you wore them with a harness it would restrict your arm movement. And obviously that's even today when people are looking for a jacket, you've got to make sure that when you, when you put a climbing harness over it, you've got a fantastic lift in your arms. Otherwise you won't be able to reach up to get the hold uh, when you're climbing. Um, but yeah, kit. And then the whole thing of layering as well. I mean, Mal was obviously um, very much up on that. Um, and, and then it was the cost thing, you know, at that time it was, you, you, you tended to buy, and still now I think you, you, you want to buy a piece 
a piece of garment that is, you know, you really know you're going to get some use out of it and you, you're probably able to use it in different contexts. So for example, I've always been really keen on like a nice mid layer, whether that's power stretch or whatever it is, but that's a piece that I could use in so many different environments. Uh, and I, I quite like that, you know, um, but yes, uh, boots, of course, are a bit odd. We were not odd that everybody got into plastic boots, these double boots at that time, um, moving away from leather boots, but they were quite stiff uh, and not always perfect for something like a, you know, a Scottish environment. Um, so, yeah, so lots of changes. Um, I'm just thinking about gaiters. The other thing was we used to wear the Yeti gaiter, um, which was an integral. We used to have Yeti gaiters over our boots. Most of the time that was great, but obviously in Scotland, it can be quite warm walking in. You're going from sea to summit. So um, now I wouldn't wear plastic boots in Scotland. I would wear a, a single sort of leather boot, a B2 or a B3. But um, yeah, lots of changes, you know, since that time. Yeah, the, the Yeti gaiters in particular, I remember in the 90s working in a shop and, and uh, there was only a couple of us that, that could get them on. And uh, invariably, if a customer came in the shop or they wanted to buy some, like, uh, any chance you can put them on. <laughs> and yeah. then you're spending some weekends just camped out in a corner in the winter, just putting Yeti gaiters on boots. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. At the time. <laughs> And true, and we we went the, the early trips to the Alps. Following on from Scotland, uh, we would you know we wore these double plastic boots. But the, you can imagine in an Alpine valley in the summer, it's so hot, and your feet would yeah. get so hot. Uh, and I had all sorts of problems with blisters. Again, in the Alps, I probably wouldn't wear a double sort of plastic boot unless I was there in winter time, or, or I was going off you know maybe to Alaska or something. What so, so for the, the novices amongst us, I'm pointing at myself. What's a double plastic boot? What, to, what, what does that yeah, what so, mean? Yeah, so the concept of a double boot, uh, as, as well as extra insulation, is the fact, if you think about a ski boot, people who can visualize that, but you're going to have a plastic outer shell, and then you're going to have a, an inner boot, which is the insulation part, uh, and the plastic is giving you protection keeping you dry it's also it's very easy to make the boot quite rigid um, as well and that's useful in certain situations if you're for example climbing steep ice you want a, a, a stiff sole mm. so that you transfer the the, the weight and the power um, up to the bigger muscles of the leg so to speak um, but to be honest today there's there's been so much development in leather boots so you get in that kind of performance, um, but you're also, um, you know, it's much softer and more comfortable. And so it's a boot that hopefully if you get the right boot, you, you can wear it in a lot of different situations. And obviously when you go down to the valley or it's a little bit warmer, it can breathe as well. The problem really is where you might not want to use that boot is when you start having overnight bivouacs. Uh, obviously if you're staying in an Alpine hut, that's fine or you're getting back to your bed and breakfast, um, that's fine. That There are limits to it. Uh, and so I think I'd be careful if I was going to have an overnight, you know, um, I think sleeping outside an Alpine hut for a night, that's fine. But if your boots get wet, how are you going to dry them out? That's dry the key. That's, that's, that, that's really the key thing. And then the big difference, the big decision for a lot of people, and it comes up all the time, is what type of boot they will get. Like I get asked a lot, do I need a B2 
boot or a B3 boot. A B2 boot, this is to do with the stiffness, by the way. So it's a system whereby you can identify. For most, mo a lot of activities, B2 boots are great, you know, so they're comfortable and you can do quite a lot. If you're starting to do more technical, steeper, sustained uh, ice uh, ground, or you're going somewhere quite cold, you might need a slightly um, beefier boot, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I think, and the, the boots thankfully come these days with their gaiters attached as well, so you don't have to uh, uh, end up having to, to to sort of put the delights of Yeti gaiters on. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is um, if you're doing internal flights, if you're travelling for sort of big trips and big expeditions, often there's a weight restriction, so you're having to sort of wear your boots as you're going through. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, on a, a trip out to the Himalayas in the um sort of mid 90s we were doing a transfer in um muscat and uh one of my colleagues had his plastic boots with his yeti gaiters that he was wearing just to save weight and uh there was the laughter going through <laughs> the airport security <laughs> calling in their mates looking uh, at uh at us all wearing sort of <laughs> plastic boots and yeti gaiters as it was at the time you're clumping through the airport <laughs> well we had a there was a funny story actually when um I know a good mate of mine, Leo Holding, who's based in the lakes, isn't he? He's just written a book and he's, um, we had a, a trip out to Patagonia. He was quite young. I probably the same age as his dad at the time. Uh, and we, uh, we, we, we set off and we got onto the plane and we managed to somehow get our heavy boots into our luggage. So we were liberated on this occasion. We, we yeah. were able to wear trainers. Anyway, we got on the, on the plane. There were six of us. And there was a really famous mountaineer on there. We changed in Europe where we got onto the plane that was heading off down there. And none of the others recognized this guy, but it was Kurt Deenberger. He's a oh, super wow. famous guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he hadn't managed to do what we'd done. So he, there was Kurt Deenberger sat in this enormous duvet with his massive leather boots on, sweating <laughs> on the plane. And we were, we were sat in front of him, uh, chilling out with the gin and tonics in our trainers. Anyway, just a random little anecdote. <laughs> fantastic <laughs> and the fact that no one else really recognized him but it was amazing because he was he was he was a sort of fairly mature age at that point clearly he was still at it you know yeah, this guy yeah. Yeah. approaching 70 and heading down to patagonia yeah amazing amazing oh, proper legend doing the same at that age <laughs> hope so <laughs> so i do have a, a question for you um andy do you still have the Schwinard axe that you bought for the north face of the Eiger? You know what? No, absolutely oh, gutted. No <laughs> uh, I, I said I was a hoarder. That's probably probably the two. Re well, there's loads of re regrets on kit. There's a, well, there's probably four or five that I sort of think mm, should have hung on to that. One's an old bike that I had, a steel frame doors bike. I should have kept that. Um, some others are some Technic turntables that I should have kept that I should have just mended. But, and then the, the Chouinard axe is another one. Yeah, the, the bottom fell out, the ferrule, uh, oh. the spike at the bottom. But um, it was fiberglass, and because I'd just used it to tap the side of my boots to get snow out of my crampons, which yeah. is you do when you're climbing. Uh, but I, should, I wish I'd have kept that. Um, and then the ice axes that I used on Changabang as well, I got rid of those again. Uh, oh, the, really? The DMM yeah. predators, I should have kept those. But, yeah, so yeah. sorry about that. <laughs> Yeah, it would have been great because I've got like my wife's dad's ice axes. Right. We've got his ice axes, which are, um, you know, from kind of the 50s. 
yeah. made out in Chamonix Simond, um, oh, but lovely. I've not got my own. Yeah. Yeah. Were they Chacals? Uh, no, they. I can't remember what what they are. They're much older, so wooden shafted. Yeah. Um, longer alpine axes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we do have a um, uh, a little game up on our um, shop blog page uh, that's uh, that's there, which is guess the shaft or name that shaft. So it's a little silhouette that axes through the ages, and you can uh, uh, have a guess from each of the different silhouettes. Yeah, which one it is. And oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the bottom. But, I mean, the Schoenard Zero was an absolutely incredible axe. I mean, I had the fiberglass one second hand, um, and then the you know, and I, and I think the problem is that the the fiberglass splintered around the bottom, whereas the wooden ones would be a much more secure uh, attachment. Yeah, it was just iconic of its time, and uh, yeah. I haven't actually seen one in the flesh yet, so um, oh, still on the hunt. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, they must be around. I don't know if you see those sort of things be. on e- eBay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might, I might need to go and tap up the our friends at the Mountain Heritage Trust. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why is it? Why? Again, for the novice, why is it? Is it with a, a, a just a brilliant axe, or is it more? Were you asking Andy yes. more? Yeah, all right. <laughs> no, no. Sorry, I, I think. No, uh, sorry for butting in. Yeah, no, uh, Wayne, no. yeah, no, no, because it, it comes up a lot. Like so, if when you're advising someone, or they've got a kit list for a, you know to come up to Scotland or whatever, of course, it, the ice axes you need depends on what you're going to be doing. Um, so if you're going to be mainly doing general mountaineering and your ice axe in a sense is mainly for balance, um, you know, and, and, and going over the odd cornice lip or something like that and going along routes, it needs to be long enough that when you, when you put it down, it's giving you support in the ground, if that makes sense. So if it's a short uh, technical ice axe, that's not going to give you support unless you're on a really steep slope because it wouldn't be long enough to reach the ground. So it's really important to get the right ice axe. You want to be able to hold it really nicely as well. So the top of it, it fits into your glove um, and so on and so forth. And then in the Alps, the ice axe, uh, the same ice axe would be used um, in the same way to do, you know, general mountaineering stuff. Because even if you're doing a technical climb, you've still got to go up that slightly easier part of the mountain to get to the technical bit. And then you've got the often the, de- the descent to get off the mountain. Uh, and so choosing an ice axe is a really important thing. And um, some of, the, if you went too technical, um, too innovative, which might be good for the steep technical thing, it might be that the ice axe might not be perfect for the, that other terrain, if you know what I mean. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, and there is a balance. You could, there are lots of ice axes on the market that will give you both of those things, but it's just worth bearing in mind. Um, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I was just, I was just having a quick look. Actually, we did an episode on ice axes, episode okay. fifteen, Kathy. Where that, is, uh, that <laughs> wow. seems like a, a lifetime ago with yeah. uh, Adrian Nellums who uh, talking about ice axes. Great, yeah, it was, I know. It was just absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and it, well, he, he was was it? He was down to about minus forty somewhere. He was in, in Canada, Canada at the time. Yeah. Wasn't he at yeah. the time? He'd, he'd just been out guiding, I think, and was going back out and phenomenal uh, episode that was fascinating from from my yeah. perspective as well but but yeah it was that did you have a particular affinity to that to that axe i guess was where where i thought it was coming from um with with kathy's question but yeah yeah it's just, a, was it just, just 
uh, at the time was one of the first ones to sort of start curving. The original shape yeah. was one of the first axes to put a curve into the um, into the blade. Up until that point, they'd all pretty much been straight, hadn't they? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure on the history who's first. Of course, there's a lot of uh, innovation going on in, in Scotland as well yes. with mountain technology and uh, and obviously Hamish McInnes yeah. with the pterodactyls, which are used as well. And they were... Um, they were very good for bruising your knuckles, but they were quite innovative. Uh, and, and of course, Rab Carrington uh, would have been climbing, you know, with his Glasgow colleagues and Ian Nicholson and, and Walt and all those people in Glencoe. So they would have been innovating in a sort of slightly separate stream. And of course, Chouinard would have been over in Scotland and Jeff Lowe would have been over in Scotland. And there was, there was people going backwards and forwards and quite a lot of uh, links formed you know for example between rab and his friends and sort of jim Danini in america and uh, so on and so forth yeah yeah that time it was such an exciting time for sort of gear uh, progression across all areas really not just hardware but clothing and um uh, and textiles I think fabrics like pertex as well so for, for windproofs and and things like that it absolutely came into its own buffalo of course was uh, and still is a huge um, Absolutely. Huge brand. Um, in fact, talking of wind, um, what did you use while you've been climbing in Patagonia? Patagonia is obviously very well known for its Yeah, wind. well, I mean, you could you could actually sort of talk about Scotland and Patagonia in the same breath, to be honest. I mean, it obviously depends when you're going there in terms of the clothing you would wear. So if you imagine going to Scotland in January, short days, really cold, powder snow, etc. March, starting to get a little bit warmer, spring-like, so you can adapt a little bit. Uh, longer days, uh, so on and so forth. Patagonia, exactly the same. So my first trip to Fitzroy, for example, um, I think was in November. So very, very wintry, very cold. And like Scotland, but almost Scottish weather, but the volume turned up. So imagine, <laughs> it's hard to believe this, but because we, me and my friend Dave Hasledon, we thought, well, we're used to Scotland, so we'll, we'll be fine. But it really was the next level up. Um with no at that time there were no weather forecasts either so you couldn't get a forecast via the the web you just were out there and you just had to try and guess look at the barometer uh, but extremely windy so think you know like scotland you want a very good shell jacket uh, and bottoms and goggles and so you need a jacket that the, the hood is going to come over the helmet it's going to have a strong visor. It's not going to be flapping around. Um, so, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of something like Latok jacket in the Rab range or even a, a Latok extreme, something like that, and the pants to match. Um, certainly that was our experience. Um, and then layering underneath. And then obviously, depending on what you're doing, this could apply to Scotland as well. If you're on a day where you, you're moving quite a lot, so you're going out and you, 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 you know, there's a few breaks, but you, once you get to the main activity, uh, Cam or Jerry Garrett on Ben Nevis or something like that, you're moving quite a lot or the Anakigat Ridge, the, the sort of insulation layer that you might want in the background might, you might get away with something quite light, but if you're doing a mixed technical climb where you're stopping or if you're a mountain instructor or guide and you're stopping to do snow skills or something like that, you could get quite miserable quite quickly and there's no point suffering. So I think having some sort of belay jacket, the generator Alpine in RAB would be a good thing where you put it over the top of everything uh, and then you get some big gloves. And you might only wear that uh, for the belay, literally it's a hint in the name, then take it off or second with it till you reach your partner 
and then take it off so you're a little bit because you might be boiling by that stage so on and so forth but you might also depending on conditions want a jacket uh you know like that but much thinner version i'm thinking of the uh, zen air alpine light i'm using at the moment for like loads of things and that could go under your shell uh and i use jackets like that a lot because it's not too bulky uh and it just gives you a lot of warmth and of course if it gets damp it still functions um you know whereas down obviously is is more limited if it's a very wet rainy environment but as you go up higher you know um uh, or in an alpine environment or uh, Alaska, Alaska, so on and so forth. Down is going to come to the fore. And of course, even in the UK, I use down um, sort of slightly thinner jackets all the time, you know, when I'm out bouldering or rock climbing. Um, yeah. So it's, it's just uh, being aware of that. Um, what, what's good about down is that <laughs> diversion a little bit here, as the people may or may not know, that it's very, very good at keeping you comfortable through a range of temperatures. So, you know, from sort of, uh, which is very, very clever. Um, also, it's quite packable, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Whereas some of the other stuff, they can they can be quite bulk, bulky. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't squash down as quite in the same way. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fascinating listening to you, like, yeah, listening to yourself talking about Scottish Scottish weather conditions. And we've spoken yeah. just, just uh, recently to Catherine Thomas from the British Antarctic Survey. And she was saying the same, you know, is this, this that, that, it's almost, that, well, not quite, but it's, it's probably the, the worst that weather can throw at you is Scotland, <laughs> or it seems to come back to. It's just like you say, it's dialed up a bit in, in Patagonia, for example, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. All of that, you know, so Patagonia, it's just dialed up um, mm. and um, it's, it's unpredictable. But the wind the wind is the big thing there for sure. Awesome. And then, I mean, do, is there anything specific from, uh, I know we, we, we get into clothing and footwear quite a lot for fairly obvious yeah. reasons on these, mm. but there, anything that would, again, as a, as a as a, as a novice from a like a harness from a ropes perspective from yeah. a, all that other kit that would differ from country to country well first of all some Often. of the things that you might want is, other things thinking of wind as well are things like little group shelters are very useful yeah. uh you know um uh, depending on the size of your group i mean i think they're extremely useful in something like a scottish environment um uh, or in many environments um but in, in terms of kit beyond that, harnesses, does it differ from country to country? Yes. I mean, like in terms of climbing in the Alps, traveling on glaciers often, uh, there is a culture in sort of Austria and sort of Germany where they tend to wear full body harnesses. Um, so the thinking there is that if you go into a crevasse, having a full body harness will mean that you're still upright in the crevasse. French, I think pretty much everybody else, the Brits, we tend to just use a normal harness. In terms of choosing a harness, it's quite interesting. I mean, I think, you know, adjustable leg loops is a, a, a big thing. And for many people, that's the way to go. So they can adjust the leg loops depending on the layers that they're wearing underneath. It also allows them to perhaps uh, open the leg loops wide, put them over crampons and stuff like that if they've already got the crampons on. Mm. Um, I actually, rightly or wrongly, what I do is I often use a a lighter weight harness that's comfortable, supportive, and it's the right spec, but without too many buckles. And I, I tend to wear that in a lot of situations. And I, the 
I mean, I've used Petzl harnesses for a long time and the, the leg loops have a bit of flex in them, a um, um, bit of elastic. And so I can open that and, and get them over like big boots and, and, and things like that. I quite like that. Yeah. What was the other thing? Were you talking about ropes as well? Or? Ropes and so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it all comes down to how you're going to use ropes. Um, of course, you need the right length of rope. And then in terms of the diameter of the rope, uh, I mean, quite simply, so if you go into the, I mean, the great thing about climbing is, or, and I'm, you know, like your stores and other stores that you, you've often just got great knowledge in there. So people that can give you advice, uh, you know, ropes really are rated um, and they're either used singly or they're used doubly. So, you know, the, the rope will have a half on it or a one on it when you pick it up in a shop. Um, I have loads of different ropes for different situations. Um, I mean, one thing to think about is, um, is where is the rope going to be used? Is it going to be used in an environment where there are lots of sharp edges on rock? So for example, if you are just on snow and ice, it's not necessarily going to come under the same sort of wear that if it's running over an edge. Unless people start standing on it in their crampons, there's not a lot you can do about that. That will damage the road, obviously. But once you get out to granite, let's say Chamonix, which is a very popular place for British alpinists, the rope's potentially running over some sharp edges uh, and, and and so you want a good rope you know you want to be you, in my book I've always been um, I retire ropes quite early so if I see a rope and it's you know I think mm, it's got a few nicks in it uh, I don't really want to be using that rope um, and I'll probably pay for the extra coating on a rope as well which is giving it the dry treatment because if a rope gets wet it's heavier and then it freezes and it's just an absolute nightmare so I think because we use ropes so much, why not get a good one that handles well? Uh, I, I like to get a balance between soft handling um, and strong as well. You know, so that's just my take on it. But you know, I'm sure there's a lot of information out there. Yeah, there's, there's a world of information on ropes, and I think we, we'll we'll come back and we'll do that as a, as a separate podcast. Yeah, I was going to say that. There's, yeah, there's, yeah. There's a yeah. Amount of technology. I think. I think, yeah, no, it's absolutely right. And I think, you know, a lot of people listening, um, if, if they're into climbing or they're thinking of getting into climbing or they're just thinking of doing some scrambling, it could be like, where do you start? But if you can get a couple of ropes that do a lot of things, then you're probably pretty satisfied. So I think it's that advice in that early stage, like where are you going to use this rope? And somebody who's just starting out, it might be difficult for them to sort of perceive where they're going to go you know, so and that could be the same when you're buying boots. You think, well, yeah, you could buy these boots that are nice walking boots, but you go on a course with a mountain guide, you get quite excited, and then actually, oh, I want to do this now, I want to do that, but oh, I wish I'd have bought that. You know, so it's like if you think you're going to get into something, go for that slightly better boot, if you know what I mean, which which you can still use in the UK and the lakes and also in the Alps uh, type of thing. So I, I, I tend to think like that. Um, um, and the Alps are interesting because, again, you know, if you think about the Alps, it's it's a big place. And the big question is, what are you going to be doing in the Alps when you go there? So, you know, sometimes I might be going there as a guide. You're going up Mont Blanc or you're going quite high above 4,000 meters. And even in summer, not this summer because it was just so ridiculously warm, but a lot of the time you, you're going to need to have a good shell and good layers and be prepared to, you know, certainly for – 
if you're climbing at night in the Alps above 4,000 meters, it's going to be quite cold. But obviously, any any guiding company would let you know about that. Um, if you're lower down in the Alps, you might get away with wearing a soft shell pant rather than a Gore-Tex shell. You know, maybe have some lighter uh, shell pants uh, in, in your pack um, because often they're going to be in your pack a lot of the time, and you don't want to spend days and days with this massively heavy rucksack. Because in the Alps, it's all about moving fast, yeah. as it is in any environment. I don't mean that like spoiling your day, by the way. You know, obviously, you want to stop and take pictures and stuff. But there is, if you're on a big alpine climb, then there is pressure to, to move quite quickly. Uh, so getting the right pack with, you know, things in it that you really need, uh, I think is useful. So an- another environment in the Alps is where I'm doing big rock climbs in the Alps. So I'm I maybe like sort of below glacier level. And so there I might even use some items of clothing that might be perceived as being for like fell runners. So like the phantom jacket and pants that Rab do designed for elite fell runners or doing the mountain marathons. But actually, if I'm really cutting down on weight and I'm doing a hard climb and I think I need something in case I get caught out in a a storm, I mean, that's not going to give you protection if you get caught in a brutal alpine storm but something in that mid valley level it'll probably keep you warm and dry and allow you to get off the mountain but it's not impacting on your performance so there's there's a range of situations there um if that makes sense yeah Yeah, of course absolutely it's uh one of the things you sort of touched on um with year was temperature there which is really important and this time of year um, we pride ourselves in having a, a, a huge wall full of gloves in uh, in each of our shops we've got unbelievable quantities of gloves almost everything uh, everything you can think of now I know you had um, issues with your hands on Changabang Andy did it was it did it go into frostbite was it just frost knit yeah yeah no, yeah yeah <laughs> I'd had frost I'd had frost knit before climbing in climbing behind the Iron Curtain, actually, in, in Poland in, in, the, in 1987, because uh, it was just so brutally cold there. So that was a bit of a wake-up call. The problem is, depending on the activity you're doing, so it's easy to say, oh, well, let's just put some ginormous down gloves on and keep warm. Well, that's great, but you're very limited in terms of what you can do in an enormous pair of mitts, obviously. Um, so when you're designing a glove or when anybody's designing a glove, the RAB designers, whoever it is, they're trying to create something, you know, with a specific purpose in mind. And they're always, there's a trade-off between dexterity, strength, and and warmth. Mm, yeah. in, in essence, um, mm-hmm. a, a really a, a glove that you will need a lot of if you're doing scrambling and stuff like that is something that's got some warmth to it but you can handle the rope, probably a leather palm and such like. Um, yeah. And, and, and of course there are women fit gloves now as well. I think on the rab range, which is absolutely brilliant to see, uh, to see more of that as, as, you know, as more, Oh yeah. Uh, that makes my life a into... lot easier just, just on width alone, um, let yeah. alone finger length on, on width. It makes a huge difference. And, uh, particularly, um, I've got very small hands and, um, I have to be careful which ice axe I buy I need to make sure my eyes yeah. my hands um and then I'll if I'm buying a new axe I'll make sure that my um gloves 
fit with that axe as well because the last thing you want is everything swimming around and you, you can't grip um, and of course with gloves you don't want them too tight because that will crush any insulation if you're using them in the cold um, and you don't want them too big because you, you're going to have your hands swimming around so the fit fit is critical that's actually i think why we have so many in and then, and then we haven't what we haven't talked about is called obviously the himalayas and it may, there might be people listening who are thinking of going either trekking to the himalayas or joining joining a commercial trip to do one of the mm. trekking peaks and 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 you know and of course if you start going high up there or even lower down you're going to need a big down jacket um and you might go for the big choice there is whether you and as you go higher up the mountain you're going to go salopettes and a big jacket or you're going to go a one-piece suit um but there's a lot of information on on you know for example on the rubs site about that but uh one piece I would point to is something like uh, Mythic Ultra. So they're now getting down jackets that are really, really impressive uh, insulation, but really light. But of course, the lighter you go, there's a bit of trade-off if you start rubbing that against a piece of granite. So, yeah. Yeah, but the Mythic, it's gorgeous. I walked past it and had a roadrunner moment in the shop, actually. It takes a lot to impress me with down clothing now, but I literally was like dying. Oh, my God, that looks amazing. Rab have yeah. totally nailed this one. Yeah, it looks and then pretty I tried sexy, it doesn't it? Amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. <laughs> Let's hope we get a nice cold winter, you know. Oh, so yes. We can have. <laughs> Make the most of it. We're running rapidly out of time, unfortunately, and I'm, I'm disappointed because, number one, we haven't got to talk about your PhD in linguistics and, and the, oh. dialects, the dialects of pit villages in Yorkshire. And also, I'm, I'm disappointed that we haven't got to talk about film here and the, the, the his, historical significance of it. And yes, it was your show on Radio 4, was that right, Andy? That's right, yeah, it was a real, I think it was, well, it was a real pleasure, to be honest, it was a, a you know, a privilege to be able to do that sort of thing. But essentially what we were doing in that programme was documenting and exploring the uh, the Thirlmere Aqueduct, which I certainly didn't really know about it until I was asked to do the programme. But the Thirlmere Aqueduct was, was built uh, to carry water from Thirlmere in the Lake District all the way to Manchester, so not only was it a an amazing sort of Victorian feat of engineering, but also it was quite kind of a test case uh, for environmental issues. The other thing about it is that a lot of people think that it was built to deliver fresh water to the working classes of Manchester, but it wasn't for that at all. It was to deliver clean water to help with the uh, um, the sort of making of cotton to keep it to keep the to, to keep the cloth clean because a lot of water around the edge of the peat district is from peat moors and it's quite coloured brown. So right. that was the main main reason. But you can, if you're ever in Manchester and you look around, sometimes you can see these wonderful pumping stations that are made of a red sandstone colour. And that's the water coming in right into the city centre. So, and it was oh. built, of course, by hundreds of, you know, Irish and Scottish navvies. And actually, the, probably the same people that were digging uh, the mines that I then later worked in. You know, really <laughs> kind of incredible characters. It's, it's a stunning piece of work, isn't it? When yeah, I I, I got to work with the, some of the some of the guys who maintained it via via United Utilities actually, and they were doing I think the first the first full inspection of the of the aqueduct, and it's just I think was it was it due to be at one stage or supposedly um it was con it was continuous continuously downhill from Thirlmere to Manchester, and I don't know whether that's true or whether yeah, it's well missed, they. But they've also got some amazing technology in there but it's still functioning sort of little uh, um, <laughs> I mean 
on call it Archimedes screws, but various things that are enabling the water levels. Yeah, it's very, very clever. I mean, I, they just, I guess they just, the Victorians, they just cracked on with things, didn't they? Yeah. You know, we, we, when we're thinking about building a new railway, we spend 10 years and, and several billions wondering whether it's a good idea. They, they just did it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't really a challenge for them. I guess that maybe they weren't so concerned with the environment as much as we probably are today as well. So yeah, to give it, yeah. give ourselves some credit. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that, that that's amazing. Thank you for that addition to the to the expedition here as well. Was, <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely be having searching that one out on the, the BBC sound site after afterwards, I think. Um so that that's that's it. That was episode 26 kit list for expeditions. It's been fascinating talking to you, Andy. Thanks so much for joining us and thanks for Kathy for 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 organizing it. Well, this is where we have to say a very big thank you to Rab, who uh, have sponsored this episode for us and why Andy is uh, with us today. And um, for more information on the products that we've spoken about, you can go to our shop at www.climbers-shop.com. And also you can visit our sister website, the Joe Brown Outdoor Academy, which has a ton of extra knowledge and skills and activity providers there for you. And that is www dot joebrownoutdooracademy.com